thing. Pepperdine's always the best gathering of people. You are here a Friday afternoon at 3.15. You really love Jesus. You really love your church. And there's some stuff I want to talk about. I think that would be really helpful. Um, or at least that's been helpful to me. But I also want to have some dialogue around all that. So that's one of the reasons I want us to be closer. Um, one of the things that I um, did not appreciate enough when I was younger uh, is just the, um, the wisdom of people who saw the world differently than I did and were from different places. And so I hope we get to share a little bit in our conversation. So I may have 15 minutes of material or I may have 50 minutes of material. I did learn this afternoon that there was a scheduling mix up with the Airbnb where I'm staying. So they are kicking me out. So I've got to be back over, it's like a 40 minute drive. I got to be back over there like immediately after we're done here um, so that they don't just you know, throw my underwear out on the curb. Um, so I will have to, to go and I'm a little bit distracted by how uh, frustrating that's been this afternoon. Um, but I'm, I am really glad that you're here. So I'm gonna invite us just into a minute of silence and some prayer, and then we're gonna talk a little bit about um, your church and my church and the church and the kingdom and all of that. So hopefully it'll be really helpful. So uh, let's uh, have just a little bit of silence and then I'll lead us out in prayer. If you'll come to the quiet with me. Lord, in the beautiful setting that is uh, this place, this university, this piece of your creation that you have given us, we would ask that you renew our hearts and our minds about what you're up to in the kingdom, in our country, in our churches, in our lives and ministries. And God, that you would give us a sense of your deep work um, in us and through us. God, that we would have... Um, a tangible knowing that we are participating with you to bring about your preferred future for all of creation. And Lord, that you would give us a vision for our individual communities, not that's borrowed or stolen from other churches or from our own desires or from what we've seen other people do, but, but what you've called us to do in a particular place at a particular time to your glory. Lord, um, just be with us as we try to be your people. God, that you would create us within us hearts that are guileless, um, that set aside pride and envy and jealousy to be your people in the places where you have given us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So a couple years ago, um, I wrote a book about the church called Unarmed Empire. And um, I probably wouldn't have finished that book if it hadn't been for my friend Jeremy here on the front row who literally prayed me through that book and was the person 
who would text every so often to go, um, is the next chapter done? Is the next chapter done? Kind of keeping me on pace. But the story of Unarmed Empire is really, in some ways, as interesting as the book itself. Um, I thought I'd hit the jackpot because I'd written this book proposal and sent it off to a couple of different publishers and um, a couple of different book agents. And the thing is, in the publishing world, it's really hard to get published if you don't have a good agent. And so um, I had this wonderful agent. His name is Wes Yoder. And Wes read the book proposal and called me that day, um, which is like unheard of. And when he said, I want to talk with you about your book proposal, I think you've really got something great here. I thought I'd hit the jackpot because Wes is not just any book agent. Wes represented a couple of books that you might have heard of. Um, one is called The Shack. Um, the other is called The Purpose Driven Life. And he has a stable of writers who work with him. He works just project to project. So um, who have over the last 10 to 15 years written the best selling books in the Christian market. And so he got me on the phone with a man named John who worked at Zondervan the very next week. And we were talking about the book and John really wanted to do the book. And now the thing about John that's interesting is John has edited several books for Zondervan. And most of those books that you would know are written by a guy named John Ortberg. And they were wanting to do this book. And these guys um, know the publishing industry, the Christian publishing industry, inside and out. And I thought, this is the, my moment in the sun. This is going to be, um, this, I'm going to be bigger than the Beatles before this thing is over. Um, and so we revamped the whole book proposal, and I sent it back to them, and uh, they got it ready to send out to all of these would-be publishers, and Wes calls me the day, the morning he's going to send it out, and he says what I'm sure he has told authors uh, multiple times throughout his career. He says, okay, I just want to warn you, you're going to get the no's first. So the people who know they don't want to do it, like, you will get a ton of those by the end of the day. Okay, so you brace yourself. And we got a bunch of no's, like before the end of the day and definitely before the end of that week. And that was fine because I had been prepped. And what I've learned in the years since is that um, besides working on the actual content of the book, um, a book agent, a publishing agent, their job really is to keep you from hurting someone, probably yourself. So they just tell, keep telling you good things. Um, and then, you know, a week or so later, Wes uh, says, okay, there, I don't want to say too much about it because it'll get your hopes up and all this. He says, there's a publisher that I think wants to do this book um, and it's got to go through. And if you, when you write a book, you, you learn that it's got to go through kind of an acquisitions editor and then to the marketing board and then to this uh, bigger, size, more sizable board before it kind of gets the okay. And the reason that publishers do that is because everybody who works for the publishing company has kids who like to eat. And they have to make money. Uh, and so if they put all of that time and energy and attention into your book, it's got to sell because there is little Susie someplace in Colorado or Nashville who won't be able to go to camp because your book was stink. 
So they are very careful about all of that kind of stuff. And uh, we didn't hear back, we didn't hear back, we didn't hear back. And then Wes started hearing um, that, um, well, it's at this person. And this person in this publishing house has it. And this person, it's sitting on their desk, but now it's summer and everybody's in and out and going on vacation. And, 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 and. And so eventually, after two years of being in-house at this publisher, they finally let Wes know two things. Um, one, that they had sent it on to Amazon because there is a person who works for Amazon who is um, basically their in-house person who handles African-American authors. And I bet you didn't know that Amazon would have someone who is behind marketing African-American authors. And they came back and they said two things. The publishing house says, we really like this book, um, but we are pretty confident that we can't sell black authors. And the second thing, after two years of moving around from desk to desk to desk, um, they said, and no one wants to read about the church. And so I included that story, at least part of that story, in the uh, first couple of chapters of Unarmed Empire. And what I have found out is that they were really right, not from book sales, because um, it actually, the, the book actually did become a number one um, bestseller in its category um, for Kindle devices. So they weren't necessarily right about that. Um, but that talking about church is just a subject that not many people really care to talk about. And there are some reasons for that. Um, what I posit in Unarmed Empire is that we have just not talked about church in a way that makes it interesting or where people think that it matters, that this actually matters. And there are some reasons for that, and we can kind of dialogue about those a little bit later. Um, but there are people like me and people like you who really fundamentally believe that God is doing something special and unique and beautiful and powerful through the mechanism of the church. And yes, there are churches that are um, um, out in left field. We do a lot of things wrong. Um, there are a lot of in, inner church squabbles. Um, there are a lot of bad things that we could talk about if it, in the church, but it actually matters. And so, I grew up in a small town in Gautier, Mississippi until I was middle school age and then our family moved to Atlanta. And when we moved to Atlanta, outside of Atlanta and Stone Mountain, we were part of another small church. And when I was in ninth grade, the big church in Decatur, Georgia, decided that they wanted to move. They were just getting crowded out and they wanted to move out further to the east, which is where we were. And their elders picked up the phone uh, called our church leadership and um, said, what would you think about merging? Now, you don't hear very much about church mergers, though we probably should do that a whole lot more than we do because there is hardly any good reason in a lot of these Texas towns that I drive through where there are two or three 75-member churches of Christ. Um, and I remember the, wind, the Sunday night, we were coming for Sunday night worship, and we arrived, and I saw our preacher at the time get out of his car 
with like six dozen Krispy Kreme donuts. And we never had donuts at our church. So something special and unique was happening. And that's when they were talking about the merger because we had been invited into this. So I was in, you know, ninth grade. I didn't care about all that kind of stuff. So the, parent, the adults did that, and I think all the kids, the teenagers, we just went outside and played. Um, and then maybe three weeks later, uh, our preacher called not my mother, but me and my brother. I, he talked to my mother as well, but we got independent calls to ask for our vote on the church merger because we got a vote because we were baptized. Uh, which is the only time after 20 year, 21 years of ministry that anyone in the church has ever counted my vote for anything. <laughs> I peaked in the ninth grade. Um, and I said no. Um, because <laughs> I have a long history of not sitting in traffic and our, close, our church was a lot closer. But I was in the minority. And the majority of people voted for the merger. So this little... 125-member church that we had been a part of in Stone Mountain merged with this 500, 600-member church in Decatur. And I think my mom voted yes because they had a youth group and she had two teenage sons that she was raising alone. And so in a couple of weeks, as a 15-year-old, I had moved from being in a 100-member church into now this 600-member, 700-member church. Um, and that was a different world for me. And, and crazily enough, you know, five or ten years later, I think my family, maybe with a couple of others, are the only ones who actually ended up staying at that congregation. They all, the others just sort of um, moved back to other churches in and around Atlanta that were smaller. Um, and I say all that, to say, um, I am really a child of small churches. Went to Abilene Christian, got an undergraduate degree in youth ministry, went to work in youth ministry in South Texas, then in Houston, went back to school while I was in Houston to do my MDiv. Then we moved out here to Northern California. We were in Redwood City for three years. And then after that, we moved back to Central Texas um, where I was at this church, The Vine, for five years. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a minute. Uh, and then all of those churches, all four of those churches that I served um, were under the 200 people, most under 125 people. Um, and then my friend Chris calls while I'm living in Temple, and his church that he had planted in um, Houston, Ecclesia, I knew very well. We had done a lot, I had done a lot of things with Chris. He was a friend of mine. I liked their church a lot because they had a 5 p.m. service on Sundays. Our family would go down there a lot. And he says, we are moving into um, multiple campuses and kind of gave me the rundown for why they were doing that. And I want you to come join the staff to take over some of the preaching responsibilities from me. Um, you're the only candidate for this job. If we don't hire you, I don't know what we're going to do. And I spent a long time thinking and praying about that. It was actually over a two-year process 
um, thinking about that. And but overnight, two years ago, um, this church, the Vine, where we'd come back from California to kind of relaunch, and we started with like 40 people, but we were well, well over that by the time that I left, and. Um, we were growing with millennials, which is a big deal and a really big deal in a small town in Central Texas. Um, but like overnight, I moved from this church of 125, 150 people to this church of 2,700, 3,000 people. Um, and one of the reasons I did that, and someone was just asking me this morning, and I said, there are ways to grow churches and we don't know in churches of Christ how to do that. And we really don't know how to do that. And the funny thing about being at the Vine is because I was there, I was there for five years and God made some opportunities for me to do some things and that's when the book came out, right, when I was doing that. And so well, I would go travel and speak to places and engage with groups and they always thought that the vine must be huge and like people would ask me it's like what size church is the vine is that like 700 people and I was like no like seven like we're lucky on a Sunday if we get 700 dollars right like not 700 people but here's what happened with that when I was discerning that decision virtually every person that I spoke with both inside and outside of ministry and my family, when I was saying what it would be like to, um, to be at Ecclesia and what my responsibilities would be, almost everybody said, take it, do it. Why wouldn't you do it? Um, people that we all know and respect deeply said, like, you've got to be out of your mind to do it. And I did not want to um, because I loved the vine. And I still love that church. And what was hard about that is that for me to leave that church, and I had other reasons to do it, um, was a grief. And it still is a grief. But it was a lonely grief because no one I knew, no one in my world understood why I'd want to stay. And the reason that no one knew why I wanted to stay is that the vine was small and Ecclesia was big. And that was it. Like when I would ask people, and I still do, why, why do you think I should go? And they give a lot of reasons. Talk about impact and different, but underneath all of it, the vine is small and Ecclesia is big. So one of my good friends who I think the world of, um, said, and I just, I didn't believe it then, I don't believe it now, and, he's, and he said, you're too big to be at the vine. So here's why I tell you that story, because we're going to spend some time talking about what small churches and big churches really can offer to one another, because I think there are some significant things that they can offer to one another. Um, here is the fundamental problem. And if you go back to your church and you say this and start to um, uncover it and dig around and think through it and pray through it and all of this, I think you will see it too. And some of you already, um, some of us already know it, but we express it in ways that are really unhelpful. 
But at the bottom is um, we worship the cult of big. And I don't know that we're ever going to really make any progress in our communities of faith if we don't at least confess that, that we worship the cult of big. Um, and try to uncover why we worship the cult of big and what are other opportunities and what other alternatives there could be. So 2015, another person I think really highly of, Andy Stanley, had to apologize for something he said in a sermon, which is almost unheard of for Andy to say something in a sermon worthy of an apology because he is so thoughtful and so scripted and they have such, um, it's like, it vacillates between the biggest or the third biggest church in the country, depending on which year you count and all of that. Um, he said something he actually had to apologize for and they have all of these structures in place so that they are just laser focused on message. And this is what he said that he had to apologize public, publish, publicly for. Um, he said, this is one reason why we build big churches. People say, why do you have to make them so big? Let me tell you why. We want churches to be large enough so that there are enough middle schoolers and high schoolers, that we don't have one youth group with middle school and high school together. We want there to be many adults, that there will be so many middle school and high school kids that we can have two separate environments. Then he said, when I hear adults say, well, I don't like big churches. I like about 200. I want to be able to know everyone. I say to you, you are so stinking selfish. And that's what he had to apologize for. And he said, well, I get why you were offended. When I went back and listened to it, I was offended. But it's the cult of big. I mean, because everything you hear, the, the, what he said was animated by, if it's bigger, it is inherently better. Everyone wants to be big. And many of the conversations that you've had this week with people, many of the classes that you've gone to with people, um, underlying our anxiety about women's roles, about instrumental worship, about millennials, and all of those things that you've been to classes for and probably got some really good help that's going to be really useful to you, underlying all of that is anti-big, shrinking. We're shrinking, and we worship at the cult of big. Everybody wants to be big, and here's the problem. Those whose churches are big cannot be questioned about how they got big, why they are big, and what they do to stay big. And if you're in ministry, you've had these conversations with people or you've overheard these conversations and they go something like this. Um, well, yeah, that's a big church, uh, but I'm slightly concerned about X, Y, or Z that they do. And the retort to that is, well, they're reaching a lot of people. They're really big. I mean, maybe I'm the only one that's had those conversations. 
that if you are big, you are unquestioned about how you got big, what you do to stay big, which is actually um, more problematic most of the time, because you must be doing something right if you're big. No one says you must be doing something right if you're small. And they probably are right to not say that. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. So um, I got a friend who pastors a church in just um, a challenging city. And they did a thing a couple years ago called Christmas at X Church. And they were doing Christmas. And they had a Christmas thing every night leading up to two nights before Christmas Eve, which is when they started their Christmas Eve services. Um, and one night was Disney night. So bring your kids, and Elsa from Frozen's gonna be here, and we're gonna have a Ferris wheel, and, 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 and the next night was like teen night. And they had, you know, like skateboarders or whatever it is that they thought teenagers were interested in. And then the next night, it was like a young adults thing. And they were doing all of these things, and none of those things are inherently bad at all like there are people who I know who are doing incredible ministry um, and they will tell you that the reason they became a Christian is because someone invited them to FCA or something like that and they went just because there were going to be girls and or pizza right um, Jesus did some things that just got people's attention nothing inherently wrong with that um, but when you ask them why they do that or why they do it that way, you are suspect for even asking. Because the goal is just to be big. And we see like the negative examples of what happens at the cult of big. Like I don't think, I'm not talking out of turn to, um, to mention Bill Hybels and um, I won't speak too much to it because I have relationships with some people in his family who I love and respect very deeply. But why would a church leadership protect a leader uh, who has so obviously um, misused his position in power? Because the animating thought is that people come here because of him and if we do something discipline him we lose those people because we have to stay big let me tell you um, I'm at a big church if you think there is pressure in a small church um, to maintain whatever it is you've got going on wait till you get to a big church like wait till you have a four or five million dollar annual budget and you are um, overseeing 30 million dollars worth of assets like you're not flippant about stuff that you say in worship on Sunday like you've got real when you when you look at our staff with 40 people and that's 40 spouses and a hundred kids and you go and you sit in a room and you've got to make decisions and you've got to make a decision that can impact those families and those kids. Like you think you've got pressure? Like I didn't have any pressure at the vine. 
if I screwed something up, the only person wasn't going to eat was me. You know, like, and we'll just make, we'll just, we'll make up the difference somehow. Um, same thing with James McDonald in Chicago, right? Like, um, the asset becomes too often, and it doesn't have to be a big church for this to be the case. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, where a certain person or an idea becomes the asset that you're offering. And you have to keep offering it to stay big. Um, I don't know how many of you have, just for fun, do you listen to podcasts very much? Anyone listen to podcasts? If you, if you can take it, because it's really, it, it has its moments where it's really kind of jabbing. Like one of my new favorite podcasts is one called Mega. And Mega is a podcast that is a behind-the-scenes look at a middle America megachurch. And it's, the funny part is the, the lady who conceived of it and created it grew up. Her parents were singers on Billy Graham Crusade, so she's got like all this kind of inside knowledge. And it's just hilarious and all too true sometimes, really way out in left field sometimes, but all too true about like kind of life in a megachurch. Um, and so when I look at our, when I look at our church, when I look at Ecclesia, I see a really healthy system that's doing a lot of really good things that could really use a dose of small church. Like the thinking, the maneuverings behind a small church. And some of the biggest churches in the country that are the most well-organized and run do so because they have a lot of small church thinking in their big church. So I'm going to stop there for a second um, before we get into, you know, caveats and generosities about small and big church. Uh, just to ask you, anyone who wants to kind of dive in, um, to tell me, tell us, like, what size church you're in um, and what your reflex is when you think about churches that aren't your size. And just be honest about that. Um, so if you like, so example would be like, if you're in a hundred member church and you say, when I look at big mega churches, I think, or if you're in a mega church, think, you know, when I look at smaller churches, this is what I think. So, uh, anybody who wants to serve that one up, you can't be wrong. Um, but I'm just curious as to some of your thinking.
they say that our country is really made for a kind of mixture, and that uh, sometimes people are just happy that they can get a drink, and our country is a real confusion. But I, I don't know, I have uh, been for the last 30 years or so, which basically because of health problems, and people have a second mortgage, they're doing it right, but it's wrong, but then they're going to do it wrong when it gets it wrong. So it's always because of the, uh, well, uh, you never take that bad position off a boat. You try to strike it. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, it's because of our building and they're doing very, very well. So I guess that's the that's it as well. Yeah. But, but uh, I used to watch a lot of this because of Berkeley, which was partly taken over by the uh, Washington. I took the kids up. I was big and I was excited. Mm-hmm. And there were some very good things that I found that uh, actually the kids enjoyed. But when I tell people they wanted to have a great beer, they were going to have to go over some. Yeah. And so I, I don't know what uh, that part maybe the, the actual question of this is a good thing or this thing is important, but that's what I, I kind of experienced with before I got to Berkeley. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things you said that is really important um, is that oftentimes, the more times we'd like to give credit to what's happening in our churches in terms of growth or in contraction has nothing to do with what we're doing or not doing. That it, you can be a product of the circumstances. That, that happened to us in California. I got there and everybody talked about the good old days, right, when things were growing. This is very, that your story is very common in California, right? Um, and the good old days were this. Um, one of the elders there had a business that they kept hiring and hiring and hiring and hiring people, and they would go to Pepperdine and ACU and Harding and recruit and folks would come out. And when the boss says, hey, do you want, especially back in the days where brand loyalty meant something um, in the church, hey, come to our church. Well, yeah, you're at least gonna try, right? <laughs> you're gonna give it a shot. And so you get really big. Um, you get pretty sizable pretty quickly. And the illusion there is that we've just got the right mix of the right people or we're doing things in the right way. And because when that guy sold his business and retired, and that company that bought it absorbed it into their existing structure. Um, it wasn't long after that, that that, you know, 600 member church was now 200. Yeah. So it's not always just what's happening in your meetings and in your worship service. Yeah, Patrick. Focus is enormous and um, challenge in smaller churches. It's very much like taking an extended family vacation. And what I mean by that is with your extended family, not time. Uh, Because grandma wants to do this and the kids want to do that. And Uncle Pete wants to do this. And this other people, these group over here, like they're just, they like to go drinking every night. They, you know, like you've got this whole group of people who are trying to you know, take this trip together. And if it becomes 
too much of what one person or one part of the family wants. The other part of the family goes, you know what? I think we're going to do our own thing this year. And like you really want to keep the family together. And so there are some unique challenges. But what is formed in that is a skill that large churches actually don't have, which is listening to people. Um, and so like what I've learned, I'm not particularly necessarily from Ecclesia, but because we tend to partner and do things with other large churches, is that if you come from, and I'm not saying you should or you shouldn't, if you come from the imagination of I'm an invested member of this body, and so I should be at whatever level you intuit it, should be listened to, that is likely not happening at a large church, right? And really because um, you just can't, you just can't. Um, but um, listening is a really important virtue. Um, and that's one of the things that you could teach each other. Is your, is your hand raised, Jeremy, or yours? <laughs> so Greenbrier, we have 110 members. Mm-hmm. Um, I've worked with larger and I've worked with smaller churches. And when I think of larger churches, I think that there is a loss of intergenerational mix. When you're smaller, you've got to do stuff together to get stuff done. But when we were in larger churches, you would just send the youth group off, mm-hmm. and they never did anything with the older much of chances for discipleship and growing because you're just not putting people in an area where that happens. Yeah. So what I find interesting about that is in your churches, and we don't think of it this way, but I think it would be helpful to, we are making a choice of connection and virtue. Like for some of us, like it's really important for our kids to be connected to multi-generation. If you're Andy Stanley, I'm not saying this is good or bad. I think that church is amazing. We want individual environments for middle school or in high school. Well, if they're separating middle school and high school, you're sure not connecting your middle schoolers with your octogenarians, right? Um, it's like middle schoolers like being around middle schoolers. Let's keep them around middle schoolers so we can do middle school things. And that there's a lot of benefit in that. There's also a lot of benefit in it. So, like, when you look around and you've got – just a handful of kids in your 100-member church, but they know and their lives are meaningful to people who are 60, 70, 80. Like, that's not necessarily, that, that is not something you should be ashamed of um, because they are getting something that you, if you went to the largest church in the country, you couldn't get. And we tend to think the large church is offering something that our kids can't get when the truth is, our church offers something to kids that they can't get at a large church. And, and so like a part of what I want us to see there is like when you start, when we start to frame um, what it is that we have for the virtues that it gives, it becomes an asset to our church. So, I mean, this is just basic like business wisdom. If you can't fix it, feature it. So when I first went to the Vine, um, I said, we offer, an, we offer an intimate worship experience unlike any other. And what I meant by intimate worship experience is like there are 40 of us. 
and you're not going to get that going to Temple Bible Church um, where there are 4,000 of them. But that's not something you can fix on day one. So where's the beauty in what God has given us? And how do we live into the beauty that God has given us versus push back against the beauty God has given us to say that this place where I am isn't inherently good? Because let me, here's what I've learned. Um, some churches are big just because right now God wants them to be big. And that's okay. And some churches are small because right now God wants them to be small. And that's okay. They all have a mission. They all have a purpose. They all should be um, living evangelistically. Lots of large churches are not evangelistic at all because the back door is as wide as the front door. And um, they're, not, they're not reaching anybody, but they're putting people in seats. That's not all of them, and that's not something I want to paint a broad brush with for every one of them and just say, like, that's the way it is. But that's the reality. It's like not every small church is not evangelistic and not every big church is evangelistic. And if you start to think in those kind of categories, um, that's when we get into the name calling and all of that. So, um, so the, the New Testament assumes that healthy things, healthy churches grow. The message of Jesus is contagious is another assumption that we see happening through the New Testament but it never makes numbers the aim. That means a lot. It's not about numbers. And it's not not about numbers. Numbers are people, and both large and small churches have ways of thinking and talking about numbers and reducing the peopleness out of them. So as, as we talk about um, large and small churches, just some caveats um, that I think are really helpful. Um, there are no perfect churches, which you all know. Um, second, um, is every church is doing their best to follow the gospel. Like, I, I really believe that, even the ones that I think are dead wrong about some things. Um, and there, there are some lies that we tell ourselves around that. One of the lies we tell ourselves is, like, those churches over there aren't serious about the gospel. Those churches, aren't inter those churches are only interested in entertaining people. Um, those churches are only about pragmatics. And when I was in graduate school, like, that was, like, the curse word, if you could say it at a church. They're just so pragmatic. Um, and in, in Churches of Christ, we have to confess to the fact that for a long time, being pragmatic was seen as a sin. Almost to the point that if it worked, if it worked, it must be wrong. Um, then we tell ourselves other lies, like those people over there are legalistic. That's why they're so small. No one wants to go over there for that. Um, those churches have bad preaching. I was in New Zealand last summer, and um, I preached at this church, and the, the pastor from that church was at this other convention that I was at for the week, and the worship leader that week led multiple hymns in every worship gathering. And <clears throat> because I'd preached at his church that Sunday, I'd gotten to know him a little bit. And we had some mutual friends. And he comes to me at the end of the week when he's filling out a survey for the conference. And he goes, you know, I, I don't know. I will say this about the worship service. Like, I'm, and he just had this look on his face. And he goes, like, but like, hymns? As if, like, it pained him to even say the word hymns. Right? Um, and it was... the. It, 
the assumption behind what he was saying is like, hymns don't work for young people. And I wanted to, and I looked at him and I said, let me tell you something. I don't know about here in New Zealand, but in America, where I am in Houston, we don't have a lot of rules for our worship service, for our worship leaders and their planners, people who plan with them. Um, but we are crawling with millennials. We dedicate, I told him at the time, like we were on pace to dedicate over 100 babies this year. And there's one rule for our worship service. There must be a hymn. Right, like we have a tendency, people, not you good people who showed up here at 315 on Friday afternoon, but we have a tendency as people to baptize our ideas, what our preferences as the things that other people who aren't coming want or don't want. And so what we're saying is like, if you would get rid of all the stuff that I don't like and do the stuff that I want to do, then more people would come because I don't like being here when we do that stuff myself. And you have absolutely no idea what those people want or want to do. Um, and a lot of it just like, if you were to sit down with some of these very, very large churches um, and ask them, how did you, just ask them, how did you decide to put your building here? You know what the answer is most of the time? We did a lot of research and we figured out that this is where people were moving. There's no Jesus in that at all. It's just basic market research. How many of you in your town, maybe you're not like Houston, like you can, you drive around and you see a building and it's like a taqueria or something like that, but you look at the structure and you go, oh, that used to be a Wendy's, right? Um, what that means is Wendy's, Wendy's built that building when people were moving there and that's where the market was and when it wasn't there anymore, they left. They weren't complaining about, why can't we get people to come to Wendy's, right? Like it's just, there are some really simple, pragmatic stuff that helps churches grow if you want to do it because there, is a really, there are really great reasons for your church to just stay exactly where they are and to um, minister to and love the people that God sends you in that place. And that may mean that you have to change, you have to get a, um, a staff that is bilingual or whatever it is, um, but there are a lot of good reasons to stay right where you are. Um, so some warnings about that, too. Um, every system has inherent abuses. What you will hear about in the news are people like James McDonald and Bill Hybels because they have big churches. But every system has inherent abuses, and there are preachers at small churches everywhere who do the same things that some of these guys who we know of do, and because we don't know who they are, it never makes the news. And I have seen, just because of the time, you know, 21 years in ministry, I have seen more elders abuse churches than I have seen pastors and preachers abuse elders and churches. Second warning, um, magic isn't real. And some of us think that the cure to our church is magic. Oh man, we're gonna add an instrumental service. There are churches with instruments that are closing down this week. Um, we're going to um, we're gonna expand the role of women. Those are two things that I believe in. But let me tell you, no one in your community is sitting around 
going, man, I'd go down to that Church of Christ if they had instrumental service. Like no one, no one, no one, no one. No one in your church who says, well, I could get my friends to come here if we had an instrumental service. You have more faith in instruments than you have in Jesus. Like that is not going to, and let me tell you, for most churches of Christ, if you add an instrumental service in the next six months, it will be the crappiest instrumental service in the country. Because we just don't have the talent. We haven't cultivated the talent, the gift, for all of these years. And let me tell you, I mean, at the Vine, we were one sneeze away from not knowing what the crap we were going to do this, sun, this Sunday. Somebody gets sick, the drummer's out, the lead singer's out. Like, we are one cold away from not knowing what we were going to do. Um, that is not a, you know, I'm good friends with the guys from United Voice, and we've done a lot of events together. We had to do our conference in the fall together in Houston. You all need to come to that. Um, but at the same time, man, if every acapella service in the country was led by United Voice, we wouldn't have this problem. Our problem is our problem in worship in the form. Right? And so I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but those kinds of things, magic isn't real. Like, it's not going to help. Nostalgia is not real either. Most of the things that people want to go back to never happened in the first place. So we were, when I was at Bering Drive in Houston, I had this lady, um, and she used to talk about, well, you know, because I was a youth minister there for a dozen years. And she used to talk, well, I just remember, you know, on Wednesday night, we'd have 60 kids. And, like, I was having, like, seven on a Wednesday night because no one wants to sit in traffic in Houston. You end up sitting in traffic two times the length of time that you would be at the building doing anything. Um, I remember we had 60 kids, 60 kids, 60 kids. I heard this for five years, the first five years out of there. So I finally asked somebody, hey, tell me about the time um, when you had 60 kids here. And they go, and this was a guy who was a youth minister at the time. And he goes, you know what? We did one thing on a Wednesday night with the two other churches on this street. And we made a big deal about it. And I think that must be the night that she's talking about. So this woman's been at this church for 25 years. She's remembering one night where they had 60 kids, but that has now become the measuring stick by which we are gauging success or failure in our youth ministry. That's the way churches are. That's because that's the way people are. Your function, and so I teach my preaching clients, one of the things we talk a lot about is storytelling. And one of the basic premises of storytelling is this, that human beings narrativize everything and we dramatize everything. So if you were to talk to me about the traffic that you were in last week, that would be so much more dramatic than it was for you to sit in traffic last week. And that's just the way we function. That's the way we communicate. Um, that's how you get preacher stories. Um, we naturally dramatize. Um, so nostalgia isn't real. And I think this is important. Like Richard Rohr says this. I think it's really important. The best defense against the next move of God is the last move of God. And so, um, you know, we used to do, it used to be, it used to, it used to. But those are the, the kinds of warnings that if we don't name, kind of sit with us 
and direct how we move forward with churches. So at Ecclesia, we have a lot of little kids and they're in their spaces during the sermon time and we are at the end of a street. Uh, so there's one way in and one way out, right? And you've got to go through this process when you have a lot of, you know, when you have a lot of kids, you don't know that this is Susie's kid. And when Susie comes to get him, she can just go with Susie. You don't know who these kids belong to. You've got to have, a, for safety and a lot of reasons, you've got to have a check-in and check-out process that makes sense. So it takes some time to check your kid out. So we take communion every week, um, as we all do, but we do it by intention. So during the song, after the sermon, people come forward, you break off a piece of bread, you dip it into the grape juice or the wine you choose, um, and then you make your way back to your seat. But if you have little kids and you have to go through that process and then sit in that traffic one way in, one way out to get on to brunch or whatever you're doing next, the easiest thing that makes the most sense is to come up front because the sermon, everything else is already done. Break off your bread, dip it in the cup, take it, walk out the side door, get your kid and go before everything's over. And so um, this drives me crazy. Absolutely nuts. And it is a problem that is so easy to fix if we wanted to fix it. You just move communion. You just do it before the sermon and everybody stays for communion. But that pushes against another one of my deeply held preferences and beliefs is that word leads to table. All right. So I have told our staff, I will know when we have succeeded as a church when people stay after communion. When it is worth being together enough to go through the hassle of lines to pick up your kids and lines to get out in traffic, when being together means that much, and I don't care how big or small we have to get, that's success. The table is success. So, um, what small churches offer. From small churches, large churches can learn that church is fundamentally concrete relationships between people, and that if when someone asks about you or your church, concrete people whom you know and have eaten with and worked and played alongside don't come to mind, and if those people don't come to mind, then you don't really have a church. Um, production without relationship is consumerism. Like, go see Endgame. Production without relationship is consumerism. But relationship without thought to theology and healthy production can produce not communities, but vicious church cartels that define themselves by their common cultural enemy. Here's the blessing of large churches. Um, it's hard to tell people to leave. Smaller churches can send all kinds of signals that we don't want you here. So my, my worst night when we were at the Vine, there was a family that came in. We all just had this meal together on Wednesday night before church. 
and the vine for its size. Um, incredibly collegial group, loved being together, but it was bookish. Lots of professionals. Lot, you know, that's the group you sit around and you talk about what books you read, what podcasts you listen to, all of that kind of stuff. And these people were poor and uneducated. And they came in, and I knew when they came in, it's like, they're not staying. Because as good, of, as good as these people are, we are giving them every signal, nonverbal, that you don't belong here. You're not one of us. And no one in that, no one in that room would have intentionally done that and would have felt convicted if I had pointed it out to them. But we all did it. Um, in small churches, people matter. Sometimes too much. And I, I do mean that. And what I mean by that is if someone gets upset about something, you've got a problem in a small church. And it doesn't matter how, um, how invested um, they are in the church. If they're around here, my friend John says this. I think he's right. A, a church, especially churches of Christ, would rather lose a, mi a minister than a member. And that's too much influence for one or two people to have. So in small churches, people matter. In big churches, systems matter. And here's a problem with systems. Systems can run over people. Systems, once in place, unless they are personified in particular ways, will run over people. And you forget that in your million dollar budget and all the things that have to happen, that there are people at the end of this and it's easy to overlook them. So one of the things that I really dislike about my job, just about the nature of it, is that I don't spend a whole lot of time with people and quite frankly, there is no professional expectation that I would. Like they would, that's not your job. We have people to do that. We have people to do pastoral care. Um, I am hard to get to for our church and that's because I just don't have the time and so you have to make time in things like so I will do um, Chris and I wouldn't do anything but weddings if if there weren't systems to protect us from doing weddings <laughs> so I'll do four a year and like that's all I can do and we do we have a principle um, to do for one what you wish you could do for all but the system will overlook people and there are sometimes if I'm not careful I have to remind myself like this, my job isn't just about proclamation of the word. Like there are actually people at the end of this. And it's not just about organizational goals, but there are people at the end. Um, in small churches, um, small churches tend to equip insiders, or at least try to. And that's a great thing. Um, there is expectation that we're not doing anything unless most of us do it what Jeremy was talking about before. And that's a really po powerful thing. And that's not, in large, that's not how large churches think. Large churches think if there's a problem, we'll hire somebody. So I ran into this when we, I asked a group of small group leaders through email. We had, we had a need for child care at this other event. And I used the word urgent in my email because it was like two days for urgent need. And we sent it out to all these and so I got a phone call from one of our other pastors. I said, I don't know if we want to say that's urgent because it's just childcare. And he's like, you know, we've got people who are dealing with this, this, this. It's really not urgent. And I was thinking urgency in terms of time, not in terms of intensity. Um, and I was like, okay, that's, that's fine. And he goes, if we need that much, if we need extra childcare, we'll just hire some people. 
That's the way, and like, that's a great thing. So when Hurricane Harvey comes through two years ago in Houston, um, me and Chris, who's the founding pastor, like he was in Waco and I was in Salado. We're about 45 minutes from each other, both out of Houston. Uh, we got people in our staff all over the, all over the country because we just left Houston before the storm came. Um, we were mobilized and going um, before the storm left Houston. Um, we raised somewhere between five and seven million dollars. We had people on the ground from Baltimore to California rebuilding houses. We hired staff for two years to help in all of the rebuilding. Um, so many families, I mean, it's just incredible. I was at the eye doctor, and this is a woman who is from Puerto Rico. She's in her late 60s. She's done very well in, the, um, in America. I had on this pullover that says Ecclesia on it, and she starts telling me about her house, and she said, FEMA did nothing. Ecclesia, you saved my house. We hear those stories all the time. At a Church of Christ with, that I'd been raised in, those small churches, it would have taken us two months to make a decision to send $5,000. It really would, because there is no system. And like there's no internal network to make things happen. You cannot, our system is designed to be slow and ineffective. And like there's just no way of getting around that. And it's one of the reasons that keeps churches from growing. Um, small churches know that entertainment can be corrosive. And there is always a danger. The bigger a church gets to want to entertain, because you do have all of those pressures to keep this thing going. Um, but big churches know that comfort can be corrosive, especially in pseudo community. I mean, lots of people end up in small churches because um, that's where they want to be, because no one can make them do anything, and they can kind of democratize their entire church world. Um, so those are things small churches can offer. What can big churches offer? Everything. And that's the problem. Everything. And when you can do everything, Without virtue, you will do many wrong things. I have seen million-dollar decisions made over text message. And those are the right things to do. But think about that capacity. You could have Elsa come the week of Christmas for Frozen Night. Why? Because you can. Just because you can. And I think the thing, one of the things that small churches really should learn from big churches is thoughtfulness, care, and planning. But planning upsets people because there are a lot of people who won't like the plan. Um, I remember one of my first um, staff meetings at Ecclesia, we were going through these lists and you get this list of all the people who uh, filled out a covenant card that last weekend, so they want to, you know, join the church. And then the second list we look at is the, what we call the unsubscribe list. And that's one of the ways we just track who's leaving. Uh, if you unsubscribe from our emails. And the first week I was there was longer than normal. It was like 10 or 15 names. And a lot of those people were like, I'm still there. I just don't need to get these emails or I get multiple emails or we moved away or like I came to this one event and I'm not really part, you know, 
all sorts of things. But what struck me, what stood out, was that um, going through that list, there was not an ounce of heartburn in the room that these people had left. And that's good and bad. Because the, the reflex is not to make decisions to keep people. The reflex is make decisions to reach people. And we know that not everybody is for us. And so at the end of every worship service, someone gets up and they talk about the covenant cards and the standard line is, there are a lot of great churches in Houston. Um, if Ecclesia seems like the kind of place that's the fit for you on the next step of your faith journey, go over here. But if not, find one of these churches. Um, okay, practical steps for small churches. Um, so I got nine minutes left, which I thought I'd be done like 30 minutes ago. Um, practical steps for small churches. Um, better staffing leads to better results. Hire great staff people. Pay them a great wage. And, I, and I, this, I'm serious about this. Because you will be shocked at the output your staff can give you when they are not worried about their personal finances. You have no idea, the average church person has no idea how worried their staff is of making till the end of the month, making ends meet. How much energy do you want them burning up, worried about feeding, clothing, educating their children, when it would take very little for your church to get serious about biblical commands to give. Hire great staff, people, pay them a great wage. If you don't pay them a great wage, they're gonna leave. And let me tell you what's gonna, what you're gonna find out when they leave. That when you hire the next woman, the next guy, they're gonna ask for the salary you wouldn't give this person because the, that's what the market is now. And you're gonna end up paying that anyway, but only after 12 or 18 or 24 months of looking and losing all of this traction that you had going, and this person is going to take another year to acclimate. Like you've just lost somewhere between a year to three years because you didn't want to come off of 5,000 grand, you know, five grand for next year. If you get a great staff person, keep a great staff person. And so many times this is exactly what happens. Someone on staff comes to the leadership and says, we're, ha we're struggling. We need to make this much. And they say, well, we really can't do that. We really can't do that. Come back six months, eight months, ten months later and say, we're leaving why? We're not making enough money. Well, I think, you know, we could come up with five grand. Well, why didn't you say that eight months ago? Like, we didn't, there wasn't a windfall here in that time. You, you know this from your own personal finances. You manage to afford whatever you have to afford. And then you, anyway. So, hire a great staff, you will pay them a great wage, treat them like professionals. Uh, that means staff reviews, goals, expectations, systems thinking, and grace. All of those. So um, when my father-in-law left ministry, um, the church where he was serving didn't think that he spent enough time with um, new people to the community. It was a retirement community when he moved there. 
and he worked the first couple of years vocationally teaching school and doing some other things. And because it was a retirement community at that, at that point, a lot of people in that church were burying their parents. Their parents were dying. And in his last year there, both of his parents got really sick. Alzheimer's dementia really kicked in big time, and they both died. Um, and it got to the point where they, some people, not everybody, because most of the church asked them to stay, think, thought that he needed to move on after 10 years of helping you bury your parents. You couldn't give him six months, 12 months to get over, get through burying his when they died like three weeks apart. It's absolutely insane. And so one of the things that happens very often in Churches of Christ, especially in the terms of leadership, is that we want to have a dual relationship. We want to say that we're family to our staff, and we want to say that you're staff to our staff. And the staff responds in kind, saying that we're family and we're staff. And sometimes the leadership is talking about functioning on a staff level, and this person is relating on a family level. And sometimes the leadership wants, when, when they don't want to give you a raise, they want you to think about them as a family. Right. Um, but you're thinking about staff. And if you're not clear about what we're talking about, am I staff or are we family? You're going to have a lot of problems. In large churches, generally speaking, there is no ambiguity about that. And so you can live in that ambiguity. You can say, hey, we're family and we're just in thick and thin. You know, here's the thing about my family. I can't get rid of them. <laughs> Ever. Like they will always be my family. Um, second practical step, the limit of your leaders is the limit of your church. So I say this with love and grace and acceptance because I'm at the, at Ecclesia, we have elders who oversee us just like, um, all the churches that I've ever been a part of. Right. But I say this lovingly and truthfully, your elders at your church are part-time amateurs. They are not trained to do this. They don't have time to do this. Uh, they are, generally speaking, thoughtful, loving people. This is not their bailiwick, and they're doing the best that they can. And no healthy organization I know of lets part-time amateurs make full-time decisions. Elders need to lead through policy not daily or weekly decision-making. And you can lead more effectively through policy than what Sister Jane told you after church on Sunday that she didn't like. What's the policy about that? Oh, Sean is on vacation again. Sean's off speaking someplace again. Church member comes to, him, to an elder and says that. Well, we have a policy about that. And once a quarter, not every other week, not every Monday night, we walk through whether or not our staff has followed the policy that we set. And they get a review. Did Sean meet the expectations of the elders regarding X? Did Sean do X? That is not, that is harder oversight than hey, um, so-and-so's family told me X about you, and we need to talk about it Monday night at the meeting. And that takes work to get, all, get up to speed on policy. 
but it's going to free up your whole organization. And it frees you from the tyranny of emotion. And it, Ecclesia, just like anywhere, if the elders don't like something, they can end something as soon as they want. Like, and there is no ambiguity about that. And if they are limited, your church will be limited. And they are limited. Um, this is a hard one to talk about, but it's just true. So I took it from a saying that my mother used to say. Um, there is no romance without finance. Paul spent most of his ministry raising money. Um, raising it for the Jerusalem church. And our shyness about raising and spending money is a great hindrance to our mission. We are not shy about deploying other ministry tools, but we are very sheepish about this one. Um, you cannot respond to the opportunities that God puts in front of you if you are not prepared. And if it's going to take you, like what I mentioned with Harvey, if it's going to take you a long time to get up to where you are able to deploy resources, of the opportunities are going to pass you by. So when we got up when Harvey hit, we're rebuilding houses, we're taking care of people, we're providing food, we're get, we gave so many $200 gift cards to our church members, as many as you wanted. If you knew someone affected by Harvey and they were just telling you something on the street, give them this $200 gift card. Um, because we saw Harvey as an opportunity to say something profound about Jesus. And we could do that because we had the money to do that. And we raised the money to do that. Um, there are some people, Rick, Ashley, Chris Seedman, some others here, that before uh, the ground was dry from Harvey, um, churches around the country had written us checks because they knew that we were moving. Um, there is in the business world, I don't believe it necessarily, this, <laughs> this belief that like a money follows action. And so, um, I mean, and when I talk about writing checks, these are not $5,000, $10,000 checks. These are $50,000, $100,000 checks because they wanted, because they knew this church is going to do something. All right, got to wrap up because I got to go get my clothes <laughs> that I left in a... Um, practical steps for large churches. Um, check your ego at the door. Um, there's a whole lot I can say about that, but there is a significant component in the mega church world that is fundamentally about preachers and pastors' ego and making it big for the ego's sake. Um, I think also large churches have to be honest about the blurred line between being a church and being a corporation. And that is a very real temptation. And third, um, that connection is actually the best connection. Small churches do a fabulous job of connecting people at a heart level, interpersonal, inter, uh, relational level with one another that large churches really do struggle with. Um, and what we're going to see, I think, in megachurches is the longer that that goes on until we learn to put people in very real connections that matter to people, at some point there will be a tipping point where people will go like, 
I can get a great sermon, great worship, great whatever online someplace. I don't feel connected to anybody. And we will begin to see that erode. Um, and I would just say this, kind of in closing. Um, transcendence. Transcendent experiences with the divine and interpersonal relational connection with other people made in God's image is the only thing that churches really have to offer. And regardless of the places, the size of your church, if we learn to offer transcendent experiences with the divine, to curate those experiences, an interpersonal relational connection, then we will succeed. In other words, when people stay after communion, then we will have succeeded. Uh, I want to thank you for your time. We're three minutes over. Thank you for coming on Friday afternoon. Um, you are the elect of the Holy One. And I want to thank you um, and hope you have a great uh, rest of your week here at uh, Pepperdine.